Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Pray that you're encouraged by our time of praise and worship this morning. We're going to continue our worship now in His Word. As you know, we've been making our way through Romans chapter 12. We'll continue to do so this morning, but we're going to, we're going to take our time uh, again today, and we'll camp out a little longer in the first part of Romans 12. We'll make it as far as verse 5 today. Um, but before we turn to Romans 12, if you would, open your Bibles and turn to John 17 first. I want us to begin there today. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around this morning. I'll share what I shared with first service that I I pray that it all makes sense. (laughs) Sometimes you just have so many things in your mind and in your heart that you want to convey that that I hope it all, I've had some practice now, hopefully it starts to to come together a little bit. Um, Sometimes we get to a place again in scripture and, and here certainly with Romans 12, it's like we've peeled back a layer, but now there's another layer that we need to delve into. And, and I think we've hit a portion of scripture here that requires a little bit more digging. I fully recognize that when this letter was written and when it was shared with this early church, they likely sat down and and read it all the way through. There's some benefit to doing that. But I think for us, if we move too quickly past these first five verses of Romans 12, then we can find ourselves coming back to a place where Paul's encouraging us to, to be the body of Christ and to fulfill the roles and responsibilities that he's gifted us in and called us to. But sometimes when we do that, we can continue to operate from a place of selfishness, even considering the spiritual gifts and oh, our, our role within the church. And, and we can just kind of keep on going on thinking, more highly of ourselves than we ought to, thinking that we're really giving ourselves to the work of the church, to the body of Christ, and have failed really to, in fact, surrender our lives to Christ, to come to a proper place of humility, to allow Him to change our hearts, change our minds, so that when we assume what it is that He's called us to in the body of Christ, when we step into community, we can do so in a healthy way. In a way where truly we're supporting one another and encouraging one another and bringing glory to Christ uh, through the work of His Spirit in and through His church. And so that's what I want to make sure we delve into further here this morning. Now, I asked you to turn to John 17. Why? Well, let me set the stage for us a little bit this morning as we consider first here today, John 17, specifically verses 20 through 23. Now here in in John 17, Jesus is praying. Now this is the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus. And in terms of the context here, he had just celebrated the Passover dinner with his disciples. They were in the, uh, the special house that was set aside for this to occur. And they are either still sitting in the house or depending on how you kind of look at the, the reconciling of the Gospels, maybe they've stepped outside the house now. In either case, they are praying. Jesus is praying, and we're blessed that John recorded this for us. And so after this, then, Jesus will make his way across the brook Kidron over to the Garden of Gethsemane, where uh, he will really uh, kind of lay things down and submit himself, surrender himself as he has made a pattern of doing. He'll do once again, surrender his will to that of the Father. 
And so here in this moment, it's between the Passover meal, the institution of the Lord's Supper, our understanding of communion is gathered from that. His disciples are beginning to have greater understanding, but not yet fully. And so there's still questions on their part, and and they're going to make their way over to the garden, and Jesus stops to pray. And he prays here in this prayer. We're not going to consider the whole thing. He prays for himself. And so we're able to get a little bit of, of a picture of, of his communing with God the Father. And then Jesus prays for his disciples specifically. And then he prays for all believers. He prays for his church. He prays for us. So right here in these verses, we have recorded what Jesus prayed about us, his church. Is this not an amazing thing? You know, we've considered as of late in our study of Romans the fact that the Holy Spirit is within each believer, that the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Scripture tells us that He ever lives to make intercession for us. There's the incredible glorious truth that the triune God is praying for you, Christian, in accordance with His will. We need that. Amen? And, and, and we don't even fully understand what all of that is. I don't always know. I don't know. It, scripture says when you, and I paraphrase, when you can't pray, when you don't know what to pray, the, the Spirit is praying. But sometimes there's little glimpses in Scripture that help us to see this is some of what I believe He's praying. And now I wouldn't suggest that this is the only thing or that this is all He's praying, but right here in this passage, we get insight into what He desires, Jesus, for His church That's us. Let's read together, beginning in verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Here we have this window into Jesus' mind and heart, and he's praying for his church. What is he praying? He's praying for unity. He's praying for oneness, that we would be one. One as he and the Father are one. I'm going to tell you this morning that I don't know what that looks like, nor has any man in history been able to accurately describe the triune God, the Trinity, how Jesus can be one with the Father. We don't know this fully, but we see examples of it in Scripture. We see Jesus in His earthly life coming only to do the will of the Father, rising daily, seeking the Father, led of the Spirit. There is a oneness that we don't fully understand, yet Jesus here is saying of His church, that's us, that we together are to be one in that same way. That blows my mind, that we could experience such unity. But let me ask you this, what is the state of unity in the church today? A basic observation would suggest that it's, it's pretty poor. Now, it may not be that it's all contentious divisions, but it certainly does not mirror the unity that is found in Jesus between Jesus and the Father. Yet this is what our Lord and Savior is praying for. 
That's what he desires. And we'll see that it's the same thing that Paul wants to lead us to as an, as an understanding that we are to be one. And furthermore, he says then of this unity that the world may believe that Jesus was sent. You see, guys, what we need to understand is there are profound implications, even consequences, you could say, to our unity as the church or lack thereof. That Jesus says that of our unity that it's how the world will know. And why will they know? Because it's different. Have you ever noticed that the world desires unity? For, for decades, there have been efforts to bring about aspects of peace in this world. Musicians and entertainers will write songs, they'll have festivals, they'll have concerts that all are about coming together and having unity and bringing peace. People want it because it's a God-given trait that our holy and righteous Creator God has made each of us with a desire to be one as He is one. But yet it isn't accomplished. That's a work of the Spirit. It's not a work of the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. And so even in our worship, as we find ourselves saying, Lord, we're desperate for You and we're dependent on You, that's the right place to be because we must understand that the, the flesh profits nothing. We in and of ourselves can do nothing. It's a work of the Spirit, and the Spirit wants to bring unity in the church such that the world would know that Jesus is God. John records earlier in, in, in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 of Jesus, he, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Unity and love amongst His church, that's us. How will the world know that Jesus came, died, and is coming again? Oftentimes we say, well, we'll tell them. Right? It's the good news evangelism go church tell them about jesus tell them about what he's done tell them about his church it's not that we shouldn't tell people but i want to ask you this what about when what we are saying doesn't match what they see consider the divisions that exist within his church today from the obvious of denominational division which is often rooted in simple tradition and man-made practices many times we're not that different it's just we do things differently. Sometimes division is drawn more along doctrinal lines. It's a little sharper division, recognizing that interpretation of Scripture is very different amongst some in such a way where we can't agree. Other times it's just more stylistic. It's not even so much denominational as it is style of worship and style of the service and flow of the service. Other times division comes more based off of the color of skin, even if we don't want to admit it. And increasingly so in our day and age, there's division over politics and opinions. And, and certainly for us today, division over the best way to navigate a global pandemic and vaccines and masks and all these different things have made their way into the church. Now what of all of this? Why am I, why am I talking about this this morning? Well, because Jesus said, when He prayed there before He made His way to the cross, Jesus said, when we're united, the world would know. And I know that, that much division exists, and I, and I certainly don't think that all of it's going to go away before Jesus comes back. Certainly there are some churches that we just aren't going to have fellowship with for various reasons. Furthermore, this morning, I, 
And, and here's the thing. I, I, I don't need to be concerned this morning with, with what a church is doing in downtown Columbia necessarily or a church up in Washington, D.C. or for that matter, even a Calvary Chapel that may be a couple hours away. Not because what they're doing or not doing doesn't necessarily matter, but because I need to be concerned with what's happening right here. Right here. That's part of our problem today. Is, is because of technology, because of social media, we have effectively made the world much smaller in many respects than what it actually is, allowing us to have these, these, this delusion that we have an impact much more broadly than what we actually do, causing us then, and I think a tool of the enemy, to, to neglect what's right in front of us in exchange for engaging in something that's happening across the country. No, what God has given us is right here. Look to your left, look to your right this morning. You are sitting here as a part of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And so then as we consider passages of Scripture like Romans 12, we ought to be very much concerned about in my fellowship, in our fellowship, are we surrendering? Are we experiencing the unity that comes from such surrender so that Jesus would be glorified in us and through us. Right here, Calvary Chapel, Northeast Columbia, what of our unity? And some of you may say, well, and, and if you've been here for a while or maybe you've been coming for a little while now because of your experience when you first visited, maybe you'd say of our unity, oh, it seems wonderful. It's what makes us who we are. That it's like a family here. And in many ways, I would say that's absolutely true. Please do not misunderstand me. This morning it is not my intention to suggest that as a church we've missed the mark. That's not it at all. However, I wonder, are we at risk of missing out on more of what the Lord has for us? Can we say that we are truly a surrendered people? That is, that the work of conforming us to His image is overwhelming us day after day? Or are we at times, and I know that I am guilty of this, willing to settle? Willing to settle for just a little? Are we at times resistant to what it is that He's doing or desires to do in our life such that He would complete a good work that He began in us? Do we find ourselves potentially resistant to that because it's challenging us or it's pushing us outside of our comfort zone. It's maybe drawing us deeper than what we're accustomed to. And so we want to just sort of slow that down a little bit, hold, hold up a little bit. I think I'm good. I'm good right here. Lord, you've dealt with this in my life or you've dealt with this in my life. Can't we just kind of keep it right here for a little bit? What of divisions that slowly start to creep into the church, even this church? Do we fiercely defend against them, seeing them for what they are? Or do we allow ourselves to be drawn into the evil schemes of this present age, as is addressed in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Do we allow ourselves to be forced into the mold of this world? What I desire to see in our midst are continued stories of transformation. When I, when I pray, when I, even, when I say, even as I have here this morning, that, that perhaps God has something more for us, please understand, more does not mean megachurch. More does not mean, oh, maybe this ministry, and maybe this ministry, or maybe this resource, or that resource. If the Lord should choose to bless us with such things, praise the Lord. But I think what we see in Scripture and what we should all desire is that we find ourselves in the company of people who are, in fact, continually being transformed. 
That we could say to one another as we spend time together as the body of Christ should, that we can say, man, I am not yet who Christ has created me to be, but I can tell you for sure I am no longer the man I once was. That there is change happening in our lives, each and every one of us. That there are people amongst us who maybe have yet to surrender their life to Christ and they they get saved and we can celebrate together salvation. That we can challenge one another and encourage one another. That we never get to a place where we're saying, man, we're just all just sort of keeping on. Just maintaining. There's no maintenance. There's There's no status quo. There's no neutral. In life with Christ, there, you are in drive or you are in reverse. I'm firmly convinced of it. Sometimes you're just moving backwards so slow you didn't realize it yet. We've got to be moving forward. And that's what we are to be about helping one another with. And, and so that work happens in community. How? How does that work happen? Well, I'm going to tell you. Let's go back to Romans 12. Let's read together once again verses 1 and 2, and we'll continue. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As we look at these verses again, you may be inclined to say, okay, so this, th- these verses, and especially if these verses have, similar to me, been used in your life by the Spirit to bring about transformation, these are life verses for you, perhaps. You find yourself going, yes, this is about offering up my life to Christ in complete surrender in response to what it is that He's done for me. But here you're, you're talking about unity, and you're talking about community, Where's the connection there? And, and, and I would say this, if it's not readily apparent, that, that it's unity that follows from such acts of surrender. As we consider Romans 12, 1 and 2, and the work that, that the Holy Spirit desires to do within us of bringing us to a place of surrender, the outpouring of that then is manifested in community, is seen in unity amongst His church. Consider the opposite of this, lack of unity Division within his church. Where does it come from? We could posit, no doubt, a number of different answers that would be accurate. We find a good answer in James chapter 4, verse 1. In James 4, 1, it says, Where do wars, fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You see, friends, the answer is, as it relates to lack of unity or division within the church, where does it come from? It comes from us. It's us. It's our selfishness. It's our desires that we have yet to surrender to Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 15, he tells us this of, of Christ and His coming to this earth and dying. He says that Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again that we would no longer live for self. Guys, I am, I don't know about you, but I am all about me. Anybody else? No? Just me? Man, it's the Lord doesn't need to do that work in my life still. Okay, there's a hand. Wonderful. Oh, another one. Okay. Oh, here we go. It's revival now. <laughs> it's easy for me to be about me. 
It's even easy for me to convince myself of all the ways that it seems like it's not about me and then make it about me. And then to convince everybody else, no, that wasn't about me, but it's really about me. Or to be about a lot of other people and considering other people and serving other people and doing it so, so I feel better. Anybody can relate to any of that? Okay, wonderful. More hands. Get more hands. Good. We're participating this morning. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Here's the thing. We don't need a whole lot of help making that happen. And so I'm not going to give you a pass on this, but we can make ourselves feel a little bit better that it is, in fact, a common problem, and it's called sin. It's called sin. But he came to deal with that sin so that we would no longer live for self, that we would no longer live for us, but we would live for him. That we would come to a place, and we know this, I think we get this, that, that, of surrender that says, not, not me or my life, Lord, but you. I want to live for you. When I consider, when I, in view of all of your mercies, Lord, it, the logical conclusion is, I owe you something, and it's my life. But then here's the thing. We don't just give our lives to him and then, and then live our life in some sort of, some state of dedicated seclusion where now it's just me and him. No, our minds are renewed, Scripture says, and then where Paul starts to take us to is then we enter into community. Then we become a part of his church. We, we do this. Look what he says in verses 3 through 5. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We'll continue to unpack this here, but just so that it's clear, what Paul is saying is when surrender happens, you give your life to Christ, now you are living for Him, and what He says of you is, you're now part of my church, my bride, and you are going to be on display for my glory, that when you are one with the rest of the church, the world who is looking for this will say, that's different. They'll know that I'm real. And so then you need to be a part of that community. You don't get to be a loner. You don't get to just say, eh, I'm good by myself. No, you are called into community. You have a role in community. If you say, no, I'm going to keep myself from it, you are, as Paul will consider, and we won't get there today, a, a body part. You are a hand, if you will, that says, nope, not coming along. You have to deal church without a hand, right? So then implicit within that is selfishness. I haven't truly surrendered. I'm not going to give myself to community for the glory of Christ. I'm going to hold it back. Furthermore, then, the relationships that we know here today as brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is saying, you are one. You may not always act like it. You may not always feel it. But the fact of the matter is, you are part of something together. And so then from here, really almost all the way through Chapter 15, Paul's going to provide an exhortation on Christian living. What should our lives look like specifically? How do we handle one another? But what we need to understand is we cannot and will not experience what it is that he describes if we don't get this foundational stuff. If we don't truly go, okay, Lord, you're calling me to surrender. And yes, this is a continual, it's a, it's a one-time act in terms of my salvation. It's a continual process in terms of my sanctification. So then, are you, are you willing? Are you truly willing to go, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it over to you? 
I'm going to let you take these things. Whatever it is you want to do in my life. Go back, if you would, to, to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is part of Paul's entire thesis, if you will, that says, look, because of all these things, you should then decide, I'm going to give him my life. So this is included in that whole summary, but it's something that we need to recognize. This Romans 8, 28 through 30, a wonderful encouragement to us. Paul says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. There are a number of things that we see in this passage one of which is, God's doing all of the work here. Praise God for that. He's doing this. This should cause us to think of Philippians 1.6 that tells us that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that work that he's doing, if we are surrendered to it, if we in fact love him, then we can be confident that everything in our life, he is working together for good. Some of those things are really awesome at least like first experience, is like, hey, this is good. Some of those things still awesome, but also like this doesn't feel so good. This feels kind of painful in the moment. This seems like loss, Lord, but we can, we can be confident that all of those things in our life, he is able to work those things together for good. And what is that good? Well, he tells us that he is about two things in our life. One is conforming us to his image. He's making us more like him. Secondly, he's preparing us for glory. That's what he's doing in your life. And I don't understand exactly how that works, nor do I understand what it is that I need to be prepared for. Some part of me thought that, you know, when I get to heaven, it's just going to be like, boom, I'm ready. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I'll be transformed, and I will. Scripture says that. But apparently there's also something that God is about doing now, preparing me for what's ahead. So we can be confident that God is working in your life, Christian, conforming you to his image, preparing you for glory. Furthermore, if he says, if God has said, what I began in you, I will faithfully complete it. I will finish that work. Not only should that be encouraging, but what that should also cause us to ask, if we're really thinking about it, is if a holy, righteous creator God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, is all about making sure that the work he started in me, he's going to finish it, well then what do you think God is going to do to get you across that finish line? The answer would be whatever he has to. Whatever he has to. So what does that then mean in your mind? What does that cause you to think about God is willing to do whatever he has to do to conform me to his image and prepare me for glory. That's pretty huge, isn't it? Does that start to then make you think that like what, whatever he allows in my life is intended to accomplish this work? Now, what about things in your life that you find yourself going, I don't want that. I don't like that. I'm tired of that. I want this to be over. I'm going to devote more of my attention to making this part of life go away. What of the moments of radical grace where he comes and he invades your life in ways that can feel kind of painful, but you realize, man, this is him changing me. And what if him changing you then is about making you more like him, preparing you for what's ahead, allowing you to be a productive part of the community that he has birthed, that he treasures, that he says is really important. What then of not surrendering? We've got to be real about this. 
Because then we find ourselves in a place where we're going, no, Lord, I don't want that work in my life. I don't like your plan for my life. I don't want to participate in this community that you have created. There are multiple implications. So I'll ask you this question and don't be quick to answer. Do you trust what his plan is for your life? The likely answer for most of us, being gracious, is not always. <laughs> right? Not always. Sometimes I love it, especially when it's aligned with what my plan is. Good idea, God. I knew we were linked up on this one. Right? Or other times, no, whoa, God, you missed the memo on this one. We were supposed to go this way, remember? We vacillate at different times, in and out of trust. So then if you don't trust his plan, are you then surrendered? The answer would be no. And if you're not surrendered, then what of the unity that he desires to see in his church? What of Jesus in making his way to the cross saying that they would be one, that they would be unified? We then have become complicit and tearing asunder what he has joined together. And what is that thing? Go back to all the divisions you see within the church today and then start to evaluate, is this truly? Is this important? Is this necessary? For us to experience unity, for us to experience what God has for us and to be used in the way that he intended, we must be freed from the bondage of self. And that work has been done. Praise God, it's already been accomplished. We just need to surrender to it. Paul tells us that, that of, of the work here that, that God has done through the first 11 chapters of Romans, that's what he lays out. He says, here's everything that's been accomplished. It's already done. And he says, and so then, just surrender. Allow your lives to be transformed. And then he writes in verse 3, Once again, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So Paul then brings it back to self and says, Look, and I, and I paraphrase here, all of this, all, all of this stuff about surrender and, and unity that I'm about to describe, the way in which life should look from beyond this point, he says it's never achieved when you can't get over yourself. He says, so stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. And this is about humility. It's, to have, it's about having a right view of self. And if Christ came in part to free us from ourselves, and we keep going back to self, this being the root of most problems, well, we, we, we've got to reconcile this. We've got to say, okay, I've I got to get over this. How do we gain humility? Well, Paul says here, he says, you see yourself rightly. How do you see yourself rightly? By the measure of faith that's been given to you. Now, what is meant when Paul says here, a measure of faith? Measure here is not an amount in terms of some of you have a lot of faith and some of you have a little bit of faith, and so why don't you see yourself in light of the amount of faith that you have? That's been, if you've ever seen that in terms of interpretation, that's not right. Measure here really speaks of standard. It says, it says, look at yourself in terms of the standard that you've been given, which is what or who? Christ. That's the standard. He says, look at your life in comparison to Christ. You see, whether we admit it or not, we all tend to think of ourselves in relative and often glorified terms. 
we, we've, we've, we fancy ourselves to be the best at something or right at some, in, a, in a particular situation or whatever it may be. And, and some people go, well, but that's not me. I don't really feel, I, I actually uh, feel really terrible about myself oftentimes. And, and I'm not mocking that by any means, but here's what we do. To the person who's sort of arrogant and says I'm the best, the person who is super hu- humble also said, or super whatever is kind of like I'm the worst, Right? Woe is me. I'm, I'm way down here and I'm way up here. We, we have a tendency to take ourselves to extremes. And, and, and Paul's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not looking for you. Humility is not about self-deprecation. It's about just seeing yourself rightly in comparison to Christ. We're going to begin to close if you're keeping track of time. In the town that Ashley and I lived in for a while, this was a town up in Michigan. It was a small town. There was a restaurant that was there in town. And uh, it was mediocre at best, Okay. It was not a place where you would tend to just go, yeah, let's go there. Uh, you could find something. Maybe it was decent. And, and on the window as you came in, it said something to the effect of, voted the best restaurant in the region. And I always found this somewhat comical, right? And, and no doubt some of you have seen the same thing. You go into a restaurant here and they claim they've got the best of something. And, and it's a little bit of a head scratcher to you, right? <laughs> because you're thinking, well, who voted? Who voted that that was the best? I'd like to speak with them. Or what is the, what's the region exactly? Like is the region the block that you're positioned on? If, the, if that is the case, you got it. You're the best in the region. The, the, the question really being, what is the standard by which you're being measured? You get what I'm saying? We all tend to look at ourselves and can measure ourselves however we need to in order to get the conclusion that we want. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wonderful Christian. Just look at so-and-so. I'm a, I'm a fantastic husband. Have you met these other husbands? I, what is it? We can always position ourselves better than somebody else when that's the measure when we're looking at the horizontal, but Scripture compels us to consider the vertical, to say this is the standard. Rest assured, we can never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to when we're comparing ourselves to Christ. It becomes impossible to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. So then, Paul says, think of yourself rightly. Compare yourself to Christ. And then, verses 4 and 5 as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul, in effect, says a renewed mind is a humble mind that allows for unity. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kent Hughes paraphrases this in the following way. He says, How happy are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves to God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. When we come to a place and we say, Lord, there is nothing in me. There's nothing that I can say I'm good enough. But I've achieved this or I'm good at this. or th-. No, Lord, there's nothing. It's all you. And so, Lord, then here's my life. I don't even know why you take it. But you tell me you want it and that you love me. And so I'm completely dependent upon you. And here's the crazy thing about what Paul says. Jesus prays for our unity. Seemingly in in the text, it seems that Jesus prays for the unity of his church, saying that we, just like Jesus and the Father, that that's how we should be. But Paul here seems to take it one step further and says explicitly, we are one body. Kent Hughes then continues his commentary saying this, 
this is not an illustration that serves only to suggest that we should try to live in a more close-knit manner. Let me pause there. What we see here in Scripture is not a suggestion that we find ways to just have a little more fellowship. Oh, unity, let's have another meal together. Take somebody out to lunch, give somebody a hug, pray for somebody. Those are all wonderful things. Do them. When service is over, find somebody, encourage them. Ask them how they're doing and genuinely mean it. And listen and pray for them. Certainly, do those things. If you feel so led, go to lunch and say, hey, we're going to lunch and have fellowship. Those are wonderful things. But it doesn't just end there. It's not just attempts at surface level unity. What he says is that it describes the reality that all of us are, in fact, a part of Christ's body if we trust in him for salvation. We share the same nature. So then when division comes into his church, it is literally ripping apart the body. And so what will we do to not only defend, but also to obtain such unity? Paul says, surrender your life. Give it up. Be willing to let him search your heart such that you would say, this area of my life, it's yours. I'm no longer going to allow aspects of division to be brought by me into his church. Amen? So we must then understand in some respects, this is not aspirational. Yes, it is aspirational. We are aspiring to something, but there's also a reality at work already. But for each of us as individuals seeking to be a part, a productive part of the corporate gathering, need to ask, am I trusting God's plan? Am I fully trusting and obeying what God has for me? Am I considering then individually, and we'll get into this next week and the weeks that follow, am I considering then how He's individually gifted me? And am I, am I availing that gifting to the body? Am I contributing productively to the body of Christ by offering up what He has done in my life? I hope today that we can see as we peel back this, this next layer of this passage that, that this is indeed important for the health and for the functioning of the church. And I would ask, where are you at with this? Are you surrendered? Are you thinking of yourself rightly? To one extreme or the other, Oh, I have nothing to offer. I'm terrible. I'm nothing. Well, don't you dare talk about something that God has created in His image that way. Suggest that He hasn't gifted and equipped you and created you for purpose. Stop saying that. Or if you're on the other side saying, I'm all good if everybody else would just get it together. Well, maybe you need to look at Jesus. <laughs> Let's use that standard. Get brought back down here again. And remember that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It means we're all right there. We're all right there together. And Jesus had said, when you guys do that, if I could paraphrase, you're going to be blown away at what you experience and see. I want that, don't you? Is he doing something in our church in this way? I think he is. I don't, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying it's a word from the Lord. I just know the way in which he's stirring my heart, the things he's doing in my life. Guys, I want to finish well. Now, I don't know when that's going to be. He could take me home tomorrow or it could be 40 years from now. I don't know. But I want to finish well. And that doesn't mean that I want a whole world to, to remember me. That just means I want to finish faithful. And I want for those closest to me, I want my kids, I want anybody else to say, man, that guy loved Jesus. And so I praise God for the things he's doing in my life currently, revealing things, dealing with the flesh. And I want more. I want more transformation. And I want that for all of us. I want every one of us to say, man, I want transformation. I don't want to be the same today. When we come back here next Sunday, I want every one of us to be different. 
And you don't have to do anything. It's not like you need to go home and make a list. So you list makers, stop. You don't need to go home and make a plan. You just need to go home and say, Lord, I'm done. It's not about me. It's about you. I surrender. Lord, you do this work in my life. Surrender yourself to it. And where will he take us from there? I don't know. All I know is he wants to see his church, this church, unified. We are together. I have so much more I want to say. Let's pray. Father, we want transformation. We want metamorphosis. That's who you are. In so many ways, Lord, you are, you, are, you are the one, Lord, who brings it. You're the one who brings change. You're the one who brings transformation. You're the one who, who does this work in our lives. May we, Lord, be a people surrendered to it such that we could testify, Lord, of your goodness, of your will, but, Lord, that we could experience the unity that you so desire to see within your church and that it wouldn't just be for us, Lord, but that the community around us, Lord, would see it and would know that you, Father, sent your son Jesus. Oh, Lord, what a blessing to be a part of such glorification of you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we, we give you thanks. We give you praise this morning. And I ask, Lord, by your spirit, you would do this necessary work in each of our hearts, Lord. Have your way in us and through us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.